At the moment, we are working through a series in the Gospel of Matthew, where over the last eight weeks, we have met the saving king that God sent into the world. And in the last four weeks, we have heard him address us as the king, specifically about how we should live as his people if we are residents of his kingdom. The king that we have met is obviously Jesus Christ. He is God's son who came into the world to die on a cross for you and for me, taking the penalty of our sin on himself, which then gives you and I access to forgiveness, freedom and a future. It is a forgiveness, freedom and a, fu- and a heavenly future that we could never provide for ourselves. That is one of the reasons why Jesus is so good. He gives us things that we are unable to attain for ourselves. And if you trust in him for your salvation, what we have learnt over the past few weeks is that if you do trust him, then you need to live for him. You must live for him. The saviour of the world, our Lord Jesus, is not content with us just fitting him in to our already busy lives. If we trust in him, what needs to occur is a complete reorientation of our lives. He wants us to live for him and not for ourselves. We can't just put Jesus the saviour in our back pocket. We need to have our lives ruled and governed by him as the king of our lives. And what we've seen in the last four weeks is that for people who claim to be part of the kingdom, there is no other option for living. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation, then you must live for him and not for you. Now, this means a whole range of things, and we've thought about some of them in recent weeks, as we've thought about such issues as how we should have our lives governed in kind of the list that he gives us at the beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. We've thought about other issues like how we relate to the Old Testament law and how we need to deal with anger in our lives from last week. And today we follow the same path that we have in recent weeks as we come to think about another hot issue in the lives of Christians. Uh, Today we're thinking about lust and adultery. And as we come to think about the issue of lust, it's helpful for us to recognise that living for Jesus the King, while we are still inhabitants of this world, a living for Jesus the King will often put us at complete odds with how the world thinks about the good life. That in many cases, this difference actually brings about very serious conflict between God's people and the world. This difference is evident in a whole range of areas of life, but when it comes to the issue of sexuality, we need to realise that the model that Jesus presents to us by comparison is completely shocking when compared with how the world around us thinks about sex. 
Uh, Thinking a little bit closer to home, I think that this issue, more than any other in recent history, is the thing that has brought the most serious conflict even between God's people. Uh, It is clear that biblical and secular, uh, secular ethics around sexuality is one of those things that continues to rise up as a huge point of conflict between different parts of the church today. Which means that on this issue, it is a very serious issue that all of God's people need to be crystal clear on. Because if we are not crystal clear, we actually run the risk of running away from God's good vision for our lives, which will see us run blindly into accepting the sexual ethics and practices of the world that we find ourselves living in. And when you think about it like that, in every area of life, Christians have a very important question to answer, don't we? When it comes to the issues where the Bible and the world come into serious conflict, we always need to be asking ourselves these questions. Am I going to live the way God wants me to live? Or am I just going to do what the world tells me to do? Am I going to live as one of God's faithful people? Or am I just going to fit in with the world around me? Are there important questions for all of God's people? And these are the questions that we actually have before us today as we consider what Jesus the King teaches us about the issue of sexual desire. And this is a real problem because we live in a world today that tells everybody from the young child to the elderly, we live in a world today that tells us that if you are unfulfilled in a sexual way, that you are actually less of a person. That's what the world tells us today. Uh, We live in a world today that by its implications has completely normalised the idea that you will act on your sexual desires and that it is good and right to do so. Uh, This is because secular life is all about feeling fulfilled. And so if you have a sexual desire that goes unfulfilled, it says something very significant about the kind of life that you are living. Uh, The vision uh, presented to us from the world is that the person who abstains from acting on their sexual desires is actually depriving themselves of a full and happy life. Our world constantly preaches to us the idea that you need to be true to yourself. And how can you ever be true to yourself when you have sexual desires that continue to go unfulfilled? On top of that, our world also presents us with a seemingly endless list of possibilities when it comes to fulfilling our sexual desires. I still remember the first time someone at my high school brought a pornographic magazine to school. That was 24 years ago when it felt like pornographic material was pretty hard to come by. Now it is everywhere. And the reality is that we live in a world that is so sexualised that we will encounter this sort of stuff even when we're not looking for it. Friends, the issue of lust and adultery has always existed, but we live in an age where we are told that you need to be fulfilled and it has never been easier to find the fulfilment that you are looking for. Which means that today, Jesus' words to us, despite being thousands of years old, 
could not be any more relevant to all of us, could they? So let's see what Jesus the King has to teach us about how we should live as his people when it comes to sexual desire. And Jesus begins in a similar way that he did last week when he preached about anger. Last week, Jesus adopted a way of arguing his point where he first presented us with an unthinkable act, which was murder. How could we possibly ever consider murder? It was unthinkable. And then he presented us with our common disposition, which saw him tell us that we actually all have a tendency to be angry about stuff that we really shouldn't be angry about. And so in verse 27, Jesus does a similar thing where he reminds his original hearers and us of the important commandment handed down to God's people in the Exodus. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now Jesus is using the same model as he did last week. But there is one very significant difference in this opening sentence. Because far from being unthinkable like murder... It would seem that as far as the leaders in Israel were concerned, the issue of adultery seems to have been forgotten in a very significant way. And so by reminding them of God's command in the past to not commit adultery, Jesus is actually making a point and reminding them of how far Israel had fallen in the wonderful foundation that God had set for them. Because it appears that from much of the historical information that we have of this period, when Jesus reminded the people of God's command, he was speaking to a group of people for which their definition of adultery had been so narrowed down that so much sexual activity that was evil in the sight of God had become accepted and commonplace, all by the people who claimed to be in his kingdom. As far as the Bible goes, a helpful definition of adultery is any kind of sexual activity that does not involve your spouse alone, with your spouse being a member of the opposite sex. That's the Bible's vision for marriage. One man and one woman for life. It is an exclusive bringing together of a husband and wife to the exclusion of all others. Within this union, the Bible tells us that natural sexual relations within the commitment of a marriage covenant is actually God-given and beautiful and that it is only within that relationship that sexuality should be expressed. Sex is a good gift from our Heavenly Father, which when exercised appropriately, actually serves to build the strength of that marriage relationship. Now, it appears that way back then, they had done the exact same thing that exists in the world today, where there is a whole bunch of sexual activity that people have now divorced from the idea of adultery. This means that while most people might agree that a husband having intercourse with someone that is not his wife is not good, Those people will generally also say that occasionally or even regularly it is okay for a husband or a couple to watch pornography. This is born out of the fact that in the last 10 years, the market for pornography that appeals to couples has exploded 
It is everywhere. It's also relatively commonplace for the people who also say this to hold their bucks parties at strip clubs. Which, when I think about that, is there any more depressing place to spend your time celebrating your upcoming wedding than by filling your head with all that sort of nonsense? I don't think so. But as I continue to speak to people about these issues, this is broadly, I think, how people think. That committing adultery does not include a whole bunch of things that are definitely sexual in nature because to many people today, adultery is just about the act of physically having sex with someone who is not your spouse. The same idea is present among young people today. Because if you were to ask teenagers, as I do, as my job as the youth encourager for the diocese, if you ask teenagers to describe what their generation considers to fall into the category of adultery, they would generally tell you, probably as a result of growing up in a hypersexualized world, that everything right up to the point of having penetrative sex is okay. That's what they'll tell you. Friends, this is the world that we live in. This is why Jesus' words are so important to us this morning, where the air that we breathe every day tells us that adultery has a very narrow definition, just like it did back then, and that it's okay to dabble in things of a sexual in nature outside the marriage bed because, after all, you've got desires and you need to be true to yourself and embrace those desires if you're going to live a fulfilled and happy life. Which means that very different to murder last week, far from being unthinkable, today adultery seems, that, seems to be that it is completely possible, doesn't it? Which is a very important moment for us to pause and think about ourselves. Now, this year I've been in full-time ministry for about 14 years. As I've reflected this past week, I can... Uh, I didn't realise until this week, I can recall that for every single one of those 14 years, I have had ministry colleagues who have destroyed their marriages. Every single year, every single year. And for many of them, they've also thrown their faith away. All because of some form of adultery. I won't go into the details of those situations, but for me this week, preparing this sermon on lust and adultery has made me realise that none of us can ever think that we are immune from these problems. None of us. That's just 14 people in ministry. The number almost doubles if I think about friends of ours who are not in ministry at all. But thinking about those couples, out of those 14 ministry couples, only one of them has been restored the rest of them fell away. Out of those 14 ministry couples, only a few involved actual intercourse with someone not part of the marriage relationship, showing us that even though the world around us has a tendency to cast a very small net when it comes to thinking about adultery, failing to live a life with your spouse that that excludes all others whether it be emotional or otherwise, is a very quick way to destroy a marriage. That's the reality. In the same way, if you're single, failing to live a life that takes adultery seriously can also destroy you. This isn't just a message for married people. Far from being unthinkable, we need to remember that adultery for all of us 
is actually entirely possible. And as Jesus continues in verse 28, he tells us why adultery is possible for all of us. But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As some people take this verse and say that Jesus is making a very specific point here, that it's just men who have problems with lust. Can I tell you, this is not the case. Uh, Women struggle with lust just as men struggle with lust. This is seen in the fact that just like couples, the market for pornography that appeals to women has also exploded in the last 10 years. Jesus is not saying that it's only us blokes that struggle with sexual sin. Think about the context. That's where we get this from. Here, as Jesus preaches on the side of the mountain, he would have predominantly been addressing men. Thinking back to a couple of weeks ago, we're told that the disciples are there and there's a whole bunch of other people there as well who are listening to what Jesus is saying to his disciples Uh, He would have predominantly been addressing men. And so in this verse, he addresses the audience that is sitting in front of him, which is why he mentions a man looking lustfully at a woman. Though I do have to say that from experience, men do generally struggle with lust that are different to the ways that women struggle with lust. And And this is what Jesus picks up in the example Just as the prohibition of murder in the previous section included angry thoughts and insulting words, Jesus' prohibition of adultery now includes the lustful look and the desire to have what you do not have. Though please notice that Jesus is not presenting a vision of sexual purity to us that would see us walking around with our eyes closed every day. That is not what he is getting at. Rather, he's making a very helpful point that as far as sexual desire sexual desires are concerned, all of us are very visual creatures with very vivid imaginations, don't we? And when you match our imaginations up with any felt sexual desire that we might have, it is not out of the question that an unexpected fleeting look can turn into something much more. That is exactly what we see play out with David and Bathsheba in our Old Testament reading for today. We spent time looking at it in church last year. It was not sinful that David saw the naked Bathsheba as he stood on the roof of the palace. The sin came when he kept looking, which led him to foster a sexual desire for her, which then led to him taking her and sleeping with her. Jesus tells us here that as far as adultery is concerned, it is a category that the lustful look falls into. Adultery is actually a very wide net as far as Jesus is concerned, because as far as God is concerned, acting out adultery in a physical sense and acting out adultery in your imagination is the same thing, even though they may bring about a different set of earthly consequences. A biblical understanding of lust broadly means a desire to take something that you do not have in a sexual sense. It's a form of idolatry which exposes a heart issue where we perceive that we have not been given what we want or desire. 
Uh, This is why Jesus tells us that it doesn't matter whether adultery has happened physically or only in your mind, because both of those things expose an an idolatry which fails to recognise the good things that God has given us. Which, when you think about it like that, lust and adultery is simply a working out of Satan's lie to us every single day, isn't it? It's the same lie that he told to Adam and Eve in the garden. Does God really love you? Did God really say that? The vision that Satan presents to us every day, contrary to what we read in the scriptures, is that God is not good and that he withholds things from his children. Which means that if you want to be fulfilled, you need to take what you desire if you're going to be true to yourself. And so the obvious question is, what on earth do we do? Jesus has told us that it's a real possibility and the way to getting there is hard to keep in check as well. And so the obvious question is, what on earth do we do? What Jesus tells us as he finishes this small section is that all of God's people need to take lust and sexual sin very seriously. In my many years of doing youth ministry, there is one question that always comes up when a kid turns about 15. Uh, Their friends start dating, and the question that always comes is, how far can we go every single year? They kind of, they turn year, they, they enter year 10 and the question comes all the time. And it's a question that I get. Any discerning Christian person seeking to live the way God wants them to live will always try and work out how they can live within the boundary of God's vision for their lives. It's a good and a godly thing to do. How can I live for God? How can I be faithful to him? not simply following what all my friends at school are doing. The question isn't that problematic at all, though the premise behind the question is very problematic. Because in the Christian life, as it relates to sexual matters in particular, drawing a line in the sand while trying to get as close to that line as possible is always going to be a complete disaster if your goal is to stay away from the line. If there's a bushfire, what do you do? You flee. You don't try and get as close to the containment line as you can. You get out of there. And this is the lesson that Jesus has to teach us. Because he shows us in this case, instead of showing us the line that we can come to as his people, Jesus describes a way of life that can be summarised in one word. When it comes to sexual immorality, Jesus says... Run from it. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's pretty vivid, isn't it? 
It's pretty graphic, isn't it? And many people through history have taken Jesus' words literally. That in the face of sexual temptation, actually the most helpful and appropriate thing to do is to mutilate your body. But that is not what Jesus is saying at all. Because what he presents to us here is a bit like a parable. It's a vision for how seriously his people need to view sexual sin. That it is so serious that just like anger last week, if you do not get your life in order when it comes to sexual matters, there could be hell to pay because of it. And so the solution for dealing with that needs to account for how serious the consequences are. And so Jesus tells us very practically that even though his application is a bit like a parable, the lesson is still true, isn't it? It is better to end up in heaven with a few limbs missing than have your whole body intact and end up in hell. Which is a lesson that is not all that difficult to get our head around, is it? But if his words are a bit like a parable, then what could fleeing from sexual immorality look like for us? Friends, the reality is that these issues are so personal that after this morning, you're going to have to go and think about it for yourself. That's the reality. But a couple of ideas. Firstly, we have access to information through our smartphones and the internet that we have never had in the history of the world. And so a practical application for the issue of online pornography would actually be to get rid of your smartphone, if that is the struggle for you. Are using Jesus' parable? It is better for you to lose your smartphone and end up in heaven than remain in the possession of it and end up in hell. Don't you think? That's pretty simple. It might also be that you have recognised that certain places are problematic for you and so you may decide not to visit those places as much as you currently do or change your behaviour in those places. A practical example for you. Uh, this week in Bible study, uh, we were talking about this. We read the passage and we're talking about it together. And we we're talking about the shop that sits at the top of the escalators at the Woolworth Shopping Centre in Armadale. Now, if you've got no idea what I'm talking about, good on you. Well done. Good and faithful servant. But when you come up the escalators... And if you look left as you come up the escalators, there's an underwear shop there. And if you look left, there is usually huge posters of women only wearing their underwear in the window. This week, I realised that when I get to the top of the escalator, I need to start turning right instead of left so that I don't see the posters. It's only simple, but the solutions for sexual sin don't need to be too complicated, do they? You just need to be aware and put them in place. As a minister, I'm also very aware that where males tend to be very visual creatures, a woman, broadly speaking, tend to be attracted to the ability of someone to care for them in a time of crisis. And so I also have a very broad principle then unless there are exceptional circumstances present, I won't meet by myself with a woman that I do not, do not know. This means that I'll happily spend time talking on the phone with Narelle or Pam, for example, 
But if a woman rings me out of the blue and wants to meet to discuss some issue, as a rule, I will never go to her house, but I will invite her to the hall with the understanding that Kirsty or another woman from our congregation will be present for the conversation. Now, this is largely because just about every single situation that involved those 14 ministry couple friends all began quite innocently, really, where the husband had a felt sexual need and the woman they met with by themselves had a felt emotional need and very quickly they found both of their needs could be met in each other and the results were disastrous. Jesus doesn't tell us this is the line that you can come to. He tells us to flee from those situations, to do everything in our power to avoid them because acting out your sexual desires resulting in adultery is an entirely possible place for you to find yourself. And as I said before, the solutions for sexual sin don't need to be too complicated, but to use Jesus' analogy from before and then kind of turn it on itself, you need to have your eyes open to the temptations that are in front of all of us. And you never need to think that you are immune from acting on them. Because we are visual creatures with vivid imaginations and before we even realise, we can find ourselves with the fires of hell lapping at our feet, all, we, all while we have destroyed our lives here on earth as well. All because we bought the lie that you need to be true to yourself and that the path to being fulfilled is not found in God's good purposes for our lives, but in embracing the lies and temptations of the devil. And so just like last week, we're left wanting to know how we are to live in light of what Jesus has said to us today. And so as I thought about how on earth do I finish this sermon, my mind kept turning back to the issue of last week, the question of what we worship. Last week we were told that you cannot love God if you do not love your brother and sister. You can't do it. You cannot worship God if you do not have matters right with the people around you. And the same is true today. Because the issue of sexual purity is all about what you worship. Because the sexual ethics of today are underpinned by the idea that each of us should be the object of our worship, that we should worship ourselves, that my truth is my truth and I need to live according to that truth if I'm going to be a happy and fulfilled person. Friends, for God's people, we are not to worship ourselves and we definitely are not to worship our sinful desires. What on earth did Jesus come to earth for if it was just to enable that kind of behaviour? A living that way does not lead to a happy or fulfilled life. In fact, for everyone I know that has tried to live this way, it has only ever turned out to be a desperate and lonely place to live your life. Because God's vision for our life is so much better. And so we need to live for him. This means that we live for him when it comes to our anger. It means that we live for him when it comes to our money 
It means that we live for him when we think about serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also means that we live for him when it comes to our sexual desires and acting on them. Which means that we need to live for the king because he came into the world to die for you and me. I cannot offer myself forgiveness. I cannot offer myself freedom. I cannot offer myself a heavenly future. And so I don't live for myself, and you should not live for yourself either. Instead, when it comes to sexual matters, we live for the king who came to die for you and me, who came to offer us a forgiveness, a freedom and a heavenly future that we could never provide for ourselves. Don't worship yourself. Worship the king who came to die for you and me. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we've thought about things this morning for which uh, they are not easy to unpack. Uh, They're not necessarily easy to apply. Uh, But Father, as we uh, live in a sexualised world, as your people... I simply ask that you will help all of us to consider the ways that we are not living for you. Help us through your spirit to align ourselves with the good vision that you have for us. Please protect us from buying into the lie that the way to a fulfilled and happy life is by embracing everything that we desire. Father, help us to remember that the only fulfilled and happy life that we will ever find is by trusting in your son and living for him, which will see us fulfilled and happy in the heavenly future that we could never provide for ourselves. Amen.